want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 37. Altitude. Altitude. Tenor, What's up and thanks for listening to the podcast. My guest today is Captain Hayden Fulham, call sign Gator. He is the A-10 demo pilot. We're going to talk about what that is and his A-10 career to a certain extent, but really today we're going to dig into his family lineage. He comes from fighter pilots, his grandfather and his paternal grandfather. We'll talk about that. Both fighter pilots, both shot down during Vietnam and both prisoners of war. Quite an incredible story in my humble opinion. So today's episode, I spent a lot of time editing it more so than most episodes. And if you know me, you realize I'm not very smart and I'm definitely no audio engineer. For whatever reason, the platform I used to record this on, the quality just was not that great. And so I didn't want to do a disservice to Gator because he has quite an incredible story. I think I was able to salvage most of it, but I ask your forgiveness and just a little bit of grace if you hear some weird quirks with audio. Again, I try to salvage most of it, but again, it's not perfect, but his story and his family story is incredible and I definitely want you to hear it. So if again, you'll just give me a little bit of grace with that, I would greatly appreciate it. Next time I'll be better, I promise. Normally this is where I would say, hey, now let's get some admin notes, but I've already gotten into the admin, so I'm already out of order. With that being said, I would like to thank all my Patreon supporters as I do each and every time. I'm truly grateful for your support. It helps me grow the podcast, upgrade equipment, and bring you additional content. So again, thank you to all my Patreon supporters. For those who are looking to support the podcast, this is a clip of a There I Was story, and this is Gator's There I Was story. And it's just a short snippet from it, which is him and his brother flying the A-10, his brother's first combat drop in Afghanistan, his first combat drop, period. Danger close, quite a sporty situation, and a rather unique situation, not only to be flying with your brother, but being his flight lead on his first combat drop. So here's a short clip from Gator's There I Was. And I just so happen to have my pod on this small building and I see a bright flash go off. And I'm like, well, that's weird. And it's pretty close to the friendlies. And so I immediately like hover over the mic switch thinking like, I'm about to hear something come over the radio. Like that's not what's supposed to happen. And as I'm about to key the mic to just query, like I, I correlate what building number that was. And that's query what it is. I just hear him say, we are troops in contact and we're taking cover in vicinity of blah, of whatever it is. And I look at my pod and I correlate, you know, take about 10 seconds to like correlate. And I was like, that's what I'm looking at for some reason already. And so I tell him like, dude, I am capture that. 
uh, in the pod and I saw the bright flash and what it was, it was an RPG. Uh, I just happened to see it coming out of what, you know, what you could best assume is based like a tool shed connected to a building, you know, kind of a single story, uh, mud hut type house. And it was the RPG and the flash I was seeing was the, the rocket motor on the RPG come out. So again, short clip, there I was, most guests leave a story up, Patreon, different content depending on the level, but at a minimum, you're getting episodes early and ad free, and then some bonus content. If you can't support the podcast over on Patreon, no big deal. Something that really helps out, as I say every episode, if you can spend the 10 seconds or so, swing over to iTunes, drop a rating review. For the review, even if it's a couple words, that helps the podcast out. And if for some reason you hate Steve Jobs, you can go wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a rating review, but iTunes is definitely the biggest platform for podcasts, and especially this podcast. All that helps out, no matter uh, how small the effort. So if you're enjoying this content, consider just take the you know six to nine seconds and swing over there and drop a rating review. With that being said, let's finally get into the episode with Gator. Boom. Awesome. Gator, thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. Again, I've had a couple guests. You might fall into the scheduling challenges, and a lot of it's on my end, but that's the behind the scenes that people don't see is it's tough to line up the schedules especially based on what you're doing for your full-time job right now. So I appreciate you joining me on the podcast before we get rolling in. Again, I like to ask everyone just kind of give the 30 to 60 second elevator pitch of who you are and what you're doing today. Yeah. Thanks for Thanks for having me. And, and yeah, I'm glad we got the scheduling mess worked out. But yeah, I'm uh Hayden Fulham, uh, Captain Hayden Fulham. I go by Gator. I'm the recently the new A-10 demonstration pilot for the 2021-2022 air show season. So just took over the job from uh, Shiv, who I know you worked with uh, quite a bit over the past couple of years. So that's been a pretty exciting time. Quick background, I grew up in North Georgia, just right outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, did ROTC there. Got picked up for a pilot slot. Went to Shepard Air Force Base, did pilot, pilot training there at Shepard. After that, I got my number one pick out of pilot training to go fly the A-10. So that was pretty exciting. Ended up going to IFF at Randolph Air Force Base in the 435th. Moved to Tucson, did the B course here. Did my first ops assignment at Moody Air Force Base in the uh, 75th Fighter Squadron, flying the A-10s with shark teeth on the front. Didn't get a whole lot better than that for a first assignment. <laughs> uh, did a quick assign or did a quick deployment or quick turn to a deployment there to OIR based out of Turkey and then flying in northern Iraq, northern Syria for about six months. Did my full assignment there, did a year in Korea, came back to davis Monthan for my third ops tour, flew, did a deployment to Afghanistan, to uh, Kandahar shortly after got here to davis Monthan and then took over the demo gig, and here we are now. Yeah, pretty busy. I would like to say slightly jealous, because back in the day when I was doing OIR, walking uphill both ways, we had to fly an hour and a half into country yeah. because Turkey wouldn't let us land there, so we had to go the long way around. Flying an A-10, it didn't save you a ton of time being that much closer. <laughs> I'll be honest with that. We still had probably an hour commute to get there from. I always My favorite part of being the demo guy was Shiv, was every time he posted a video, I just always loved just going in there commenting about how it's cool to see it in slow motion. It, it, you know? it, it, listen, it, yeah, it never gets old. I, I've learned yeah. just embrace it. Yeah, but you know, like the, for those who haven't seen the A10 demo, it's awesome because the, the demonstration, like it stays in front of you the entire time. Yeah. The coolest part for me is the squat coming out of the dive, yeah. uh, the strafing pass, and you just hear like the air cushion. To me, it's wild. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, even it, that's probably the one part of the demo that it's fun to do that in front of folks that haven't seen it. That's also flying the A-10 where they're like, dang, I didn't even know the airplane would do that. So it's fun. That's one of those fun ones to 
to go out and show off a little bit. What's that? Is, it, is that a high over G potential right there? I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a definite high over G potential on that one. No, I never over G doing that. I promise. But, uh, but yeah, basically for us, just a 10 G whiz nerdery. As long as the wing tanks are dry, you're basically the ba basic aircraft weight. Uh, the jet's rated to 7.3 G's. And so as long as you're below 285, you can just two hands and try and break the stick off and you'll just do a big accelerated stall. This is down the rabbit hole, but here we go. We're yeah. before we bust into stuff. The Viper 9G platform, and I would typically pull 9798, which would be an over G, and there's this long decision tree, which we had to prove it a couple times. But you run this four-page decision tree, and it's like, all right, if it's basically the demo configuration, 98, and you're good to go. Oh, cool. But one thing that, and I'm, someone's going to call me out on this, but I doubt is you can ask any Viper pilot, like, asymmetric over G. So the G limits change for asymmetric, but there's nothing that tells on you. So there, there are a couple jets that have the data recording for it mm -hmm. and it's very few, but you're like, if you had that in all the Vipers, the amount of like asymmetric over G's would be astounding. I, I guarantee it. Like, on that one. Yeah. And if, if yeah. we're <laughs> doing that, I'd be in a bad way. I'm sure. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Well, dude, um, I want to backtrack. So you have a really cool family story and it, it's, I think it's fairly unique and it's something I've never done on the podcast. But when I read your story, when you submitted and you submitted it to the podcast, part of it was like, I mean, my jaw was on the table. So I kind of want to turn the talking stick over to you and just let you tell a little bit of your family story and then we'll get into your career. Maybe not. I think, you know, it's, it's a fascinating yeah. aspect of your family heritage and history. So. Again, I kind of just turn it over to you and let you tell your family heritage. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's something I'm obviously extremely proud of and I'm an open book about it. Happy to talk about it. And this will carry, you know, feel free to wave at me or cut me off at any point. Uh, <laughs> I, just like you saw already, it's pretty easy for me to get going down the rabbit hole, uh, with some of this stuff, but just to set, set the stage a little bit, uh, kind of some of the stuff I'm going to share is really, it's the whole reason I do what I do. And it's my, it's where the passion for flying, it's where the passion for airplanes, the passion to serve, uh, and just being a proud American, where a lot of it comes from, that is a lot of it from this story. And, and it resonates well, you know, throughout my family, my younger brother, he also, he's in the air force, flies A-10s and we were, uh, in the same squadron here at DM for a little while. So that's, that's, that's really cool in and of itself. And then his wife, who he's now married to, is also an A-10 pilot. So it's turned into a full family business now, which is pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, especially when all three of us got to, got to serve in the same squadron. But to, yeah, to answer your question or to go into it, it the, it's a tough story in the sense of like, where do you start? So I guess we'll just go all the way at the beginning and we'll go from there. My, my grandfather on my, my paternal grandfather on my dad's side, his name was Wayne Fulham. Born and raised Chattanooga, Tennessee, married my grandmother. They were high school sweethearts there in, in Chattanooga, born and raised in high school in the fifties. So towards tail end of the Korean war, Vietnam's kicking off basically, or, or as things are starting to roll, he enlists in the air force after graduating college from the university of Tennessee gets picked up fairly quickly for aviation cadet program. So at the time you weren't a commissioned officer as you're going through pilot training, those kinds of things. He got selected for what they called aviation cadets at the time. And then once he graduated from that program, he got his wings, earned his commission as a second lieutenant and got married all on the same day. They, he literally graduated from what we would call pilot training now. And he and my grandmother went to the base chapel and got married uh, on the same day. What, uh, what, what year was that? That would have been, oh, golly, I don't know. Uh, put me on the spot. Early, mid-50s, yeah. like post-Korean War is, uh, is where he joins. By the time Vietnam gets around, he's an old guy in Vietnam. Um, so mid-50s, so post-Korean okay. War, but 
really cool time to be in the Air Force. So if you're a flying history buff, Air Force history buff, this is like prime time, dawn of the jet age. So just missed, like just barely missed flying all the warbirds. I'm seeing air shows all over the place now. Yeah. And right out of his pilot training, he's in the, the F-80 and then the F-86 and then goes on to fly a lot of other bigger, faster, a century series type things. But yeah, commissions, married, graduates, does all the big things, does a number of jet tours. And in that day and age, if you went to a new base, you fly a new jet. So it was a pretty, pretty wild time or pretty awesome, you know, pretty unique time in aviation history where it's not uncommon, but these guys aren't test pilots, but they fly a dozen or so different jets throughout their career. So pretty cool stuff. Fast forward to now when he's flying the F-105, the majority of his time, and of course, kind of the, the highlights of his career when he's flying the F-105, the Thunder Chief, also a Republic built airplane, so pretty cool A-10 lineage there. And he, my grandmother, and now my dad and his uh, two brothers, they're living in Kadena in Okinawa. And Vietnam War has kicked off now. And he is basically from, the, he is assigned to the 67th, uh, which is still an F-15 yep. unit there in Kadena. He's assigned 67, the uh, fighting cocks there. They sent him TY to go fly with the 469. At the time, TAC fighter squadron. Now it's a T-38 training squadron from uh, Shepard. So he goes and flies with the 469, uh, the Bulls out of Kadena uh, in Thailand. And is flying F-105, so he's out of there. So fast forward, as he's starting to gain some experience there, he, it, it is uh, October 7th of 1967 in my my uncles will probably kill me. I want to say it's probably like his 34, 36. He's in his mid thirties for his sortie count there. They're, they're contracted to a hundred missions over Vietnam. So he's somewhere in his thirties. Uh, he's been there a little while now and he is on his mission commander check doing a, is leading a 16 ship of F-105s and then a four ship of F-4s to go north of Hanoi to the Kemp rail yard. So Kemp is a town just north of Hanoi, big supply depot. And they have a large railroad that obviously they're supplying uh, munitions and other beans and bullets throughout North Vietnam. There've been multiple attempts to go strike the Kemp rail yard in weeks, months past, and you can go into all of the, the ins yeah. and outs and the litany of fighting in North Vietnam and the pain that would have been at the time. But need to say they, there's multiple strike attempts on this area. And in previous missions, the mission commanders had been shot down. So he's now the mission commander and he's leading the strike package into Kent to try and get the first successful weapons basically down to be effective on the rail yard. So they take off, they, they blast up there. And again, so he's the mission commander. There's four, four ships that of F-105s that are, I don't know how far in trail, but basically they're just in this strike package, just rolling train, uh, to, to take as much hate up there as they can. And then they've got the F-4s providing a cap for them for when, I mean, they're going to Hanoi. Hanoi at the time, that's the most heavily defended area in yeah. pretty much in the world as far as AAA and SAMs. And this is the first, the first iteration of radar guided SAMs and uh, their effectiveness. And then, of course, all that does is drive all the, the strikers, the, the 105s and stuff down low, where you get down low and all you do is get beaten up by AAA. So that's where the majority of the losses in Vietnam from the AAA, not necessarily the SAMs. So they head up to Kep. They, they take off out of Karat over the Gulf of Tonkin, and now they're heading up to, to the Kep rail yard. And I don't know, it's not a very far flight. Um, it's not like these big, like, OIR or, or Afghanistan pushes. This is a short sortie that they're going out to do, basically go up to Kep, drop their bombs, come back. As he gets over Kep, there's multiple SAM launches. There's MiG scrambled against them. And at some point, at some point, he's hit over Kep and basically snaps to the east to try and get over the Gulf of Tonkin because your best chance of survival, get out over the water, punch over the water, uh, the Navy can come pick you up. And pretty much if you're over land and you are north of the, the demarcation line, you're in North Vietnam, like you're in a backwind. He snaps east, which is just the, the standard procedure there to try and get over the water. And he's having trouble keeping the nose of the airplane up. 
one of his wingman officers like, hey, shoot out the gun because the gun and the ammo drums on the front of the airplane. Jettisons the remaining stores, shoots out all the ammo and the gun and uh, still can't keep your nose up. Basically rides with it as long as possible. Makes the last call that, hey, I'm getting out. Punches out of the airplane. And his wingmen, they see, they see, identify, hey, he's got a good shoot. They have a good beacon on him and they're circling around as long as they can. Uh, but obviously they're in a very contested environment. It's not, it's not, you just have free reign of the sky to sit here and hang out over him. Also, then they're flying gigantic single engine after burning jet fighters at low altitude. So they don't have a lot of gas to play with either. They stay as long as possible, basically hand them off to the, the flight that's checking in after them. They see the parachute hit the trees and it's immediately ripped down from the trees, which they immediately think like, nah, that's probably him pulling out of the trees. Fast forward 20, 30 years later, it doesn't appear that was the case. No one ever makes two-way contact with him once he's on the ground. So now it's not, they're unsure as he did the ejection, uh, the ejection kill him. Is he a POW? Was he immediately captured? Was it caught by him? Nobody knows really what happened, but no, no comms were made at the time. And they know he was apprehended pretty much immediately just based on the area that they were through like prisoner of war networks and stuff, jumping ahead of the story, people always, people would ask that knew him as subsequently as other pilots get shot out. Hey, has anybody seen Wayne? Does anybody know what happened to Wayne? And he, you know, essentially fell off the place, you know, face of the earth. No, there was no sign, no nothing. So coming back home, now you have my grandmother at the time and her, her three boys, my dad and my two uncles, and they're living still in Okinawa. Man, they don't know. Like that was just, he's MIA and he's MIA until the end of the war. How old was your dad and uncle? Dad, he was shot down 67. Dad was eight. Uh, my dad was eight and then he's the middle. So he had an older brother, my uncle Mike. Um, oh, I think they're two years apart, three years. So he's 10, 11 years old. So he, he has quite a few memories of his time in their life. Like he has a lot of vivid memories. And then my uncle Gary, my dad's younger brother, he's only six or so, five or six years old. So pretty young. This is not an uncommon story at that time with guys getting shot down and then wives, kids are still in Japan. What, did you ever talk to your grandmother about what was, yeah, what were those days like? Yeah, uh, a little bit. And she was always, she was probably the most open about to include my dad, my uncles, my, and then who my grandmother ended up remarrying after the war. Like she was probably the most open book of anybody. Like she, yeah. she, and she remembered everything. You could do a whole podcast just on my grandmother. Fa absolutely fascinating person. She's passed away about two years ago now. Unbelievable. Like just a fascinating person. And uh, yeah. And basically she was just to your point. It was okay. What do we do now? What are the next steps? Do we stay here and wait to hear word? Do we go home? And how does that work out? And I don't know the whole timeline of what they ended up doing, but they do end up they do end up coming back to the States and uh, coming home during that period and more or less just waiting. And then if you ever read into any of this stuff, there was a lot of flags that became very uh, strong advocates for the POWs and ended up going to the friends of Paris peace talks. And, and she was right in the mix of all that. She traveled to Paris with my dad and my uncles and went and spoke at the Paris peace talks. And she traveled on the road with Billy Graham for a number of years, speaking at the Billy Graham cr crusades on behalf of the POWs. And it's pretty fascinating to things herself. But so to jump past some of that, they end up coming back home and hanging out here, or I say here, hanging out back in uh, Tennessee until the end of the war. So then you fast forward to the 80s, and now the North Vietnamese are releasing some similar to what happened three years ago in North Korea. Now they're repatriating some U.S. US service members and sending the remains back home. Uh, so a lot of that stuff is cataloged and identified. So my, I don't know what number he was, but Wayne ends up, his remains are identified in uh, 1987 and he's on the initial batch of those remains and ended up coming back home. So he, his remains are identified in 87. He's flown to Hawaii 
and then ends up coming back to Chattanooga. And in January of 1988, my mom is pregnant with me at the time. They have his funeral back to Chattanooga. It's pretty amazing. Wow. So now he's buried at the National Cemetery there in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I told him some of the stuff we talked about before, how the story comes full circle. So then my grandmother, after the war, one of course is living back in Chattanooga. And so who I grew up with my entire life, knowing as my grandfather, his name was Roger Ingleson. That's who my grandmother ended up remarrying. So Roger and Wayne, Roger was a career fighter pilot around the same time period. So he joined the Air Force in the just post-Korean War. So basically knew his draft number was coming up towards the end of the Korean War, ends up enlisting in the Air Force and is, is initially not pilot qualified, which I didn't even know until about a year after he died, going through some little paperwork. There's like just straight up out of the movies. It's like a big medical form with a giant like denied stamp on the top of it. So he did two years enlisted in the Air Force, airborne radar repairman. And then end up getting into aviation cadets and do kind of the same route flying. But he and my grandmother, like I said, my grandmother remarried post-war. So he and Wayne flew F-105. They were stationed together on multiple, on a couple, couple of assignments and were best friends. Flew together quite often. Roger had one son, Craig, who's now, of course, my uncle Craig. So Roger... Again, that same time period, flew everything under the sun as far as the early jets go. Flew F-80s, F-86s, some of the weird ones you don't hear much about, F-94s, the F-89, like out of Reykjavik, Iceland, a lot of nukes <laughs> eastbound, doing like just crazy stuff. Flew F-100s and then the F-105. And then the majority of his career was in the F-105. And at one time, I don't know how true it is, like any good fighter pilot story, you don't let the truth get in the way, you know, but at one time I was told he was the highest hour F-105 pilot in the Air Force. Certainly not now, but for a period of time when he was doing some, some operational tests down at Eglin on the F-105, basically doing a lot of the tactics development for what they used in Vietnam. Like, how are they going to, how are they going to use this airplane in a contested yeah. environment? Yeah. Don't know how true it is, but in story to throw out the bar. Yeah. So it'd be obviously a very seasoned F-105 pilot. I mean, he's a major by the time he goes to Vietnam. And then his, uh, his first wife, who of course I never met named Jacqueline, she suffered from MS. And so when, when he was in, when he was overseas at Kadena as well, he did not go and just stay permanently at Vietnam. He basically was responsible for ferrying fresh jets, one, due to combat losses and two, because of maintenance of things, but mostly combat losses. So he's ferrying fresh iron from Japan and to, or from Okinawa and then taking it to, to Thailand, the delivery. And so usually in those times, he'd get me fly combat sorties while he was there as well, but they did it, you know, and I didn't even realize how some of this worked out until recent years, but he would go back home. So he was able to help out with his wife. So in, in that time and doing some of that, he was flying a TDY with the 34th fighter squadron, attack fighter squadron, which is now the, the rude Rams F-35 unit at Hill. So that's who, that's who he would fly with every time he was in country and ended up becoming the ops officer for that squadron as well. So, uh, again, still contracted to his 100 missions in Vietnam and flying whenever he's in country. So on his 87th mission, so this is about four months after Wayne had been shot out. This is early 1968 on his 87th mission. And he is, he's not all the way to Hanoi, but he's in the North Vietnam, North Vietnamese territory, but South Hanoi. So the route, like route pack five and six were the most high threat missions that they flew. That's what Wayne was doing was a route pack six, uh, when he was up North. And so Roger's flying on one south of Hanoi there, basically on their way home after whatever the strike was, they're on their way back and they basically pick up a convoy of North of Russian trucks, Russian built trucks that they know are running supplies for the North Vietnamese. Basically they ain't going to let them go unharmed. So, you know, they fence in and uh, get to work on these Russian trucks and they're doing multiple strafe passes over the trucks. 
And it's been like up in the air of what actually happened to the airplane. I've heard everything from AAA or even the, the Golden BB small arms or, or even someone suggested an older gentleman. This was at his funeral. As a matter of fact, that had a, a million hours in the F-105 was like what could have been his gun exploded because the gun's in the nose of the airplane and he's just like any of them would do there. There ain't no ops limits on the gun. You roll in and you got one shot at this target. You're just going to hammer it out. So uh, there's potential like a catastrophic gun malfunction in the nose of the airplane. Basically what happens is he's rolling down final and all of a sudden the entire cockpit's on fire, loud boom, he's engulfed in flames and he's pulling up away from the ground as quick as he can. Uh, and pretty quick after that, the airplane's out of control. He punches out of the airplane and I've got a quote of his in a book here, but to, to not do it justice and sum up, he's that's a really dumb idea to punch out over something you were just shooting at. I was just going to say, I mean, just, uh, you know, the guys you were just bombing and strafing. Yeah. They're going to really welcome you with open arms. Exactly. And you, you've heard stories before and he, he is one of those stories now. So he immediately punches out of the airplane and in the kind of the most miraculous part is he's not even really hurt. He hits the ground with virtually no injuries. The best he was able to assess, so he's at just what they did in Vietnam, they fly as low as possible, as fast as possible. So he's somewhere around 500 knots and, and below 200 feet on the tree line when he punches out. So he's, he, the way he would describe that was like, he pulled the handles knowing this is probably it, but that was yeah. his only choice to get out of the airplane. He's knocked unconscious just from the wind blast getting out of the airplane. And then he comes to right before he hits the ground and kind of expects to give himself a once over and have flailing injuries and busted up and all this. And he's, I'm totally fine. Like no broken bones, no bruises, no scrapes, no nothing. Solely healthy. But basically as soon as he, as soon as he hits the ground and he comes to and checks himself out, that, that rifle round comes right over his right ear. And so he kind of, uh, hunkers down and shows his hands and doesn't do it. It turns around and it's like a 12 year old, you know, 12 year old farm boy, like a kid comes up and has him at gunpoint. So he's, that's about, that's probably close to the scariest person you could run into in the field. So yeah. you just have a kid out here. This is pretty hard to rationalize, maybe pretty hard to rationalize with. And before anything gets, you know, too carried away, he's rolled up by the, basically the whole convoy. He was just, uh, just attacking. So immediately right then in there, he's a prisoner up in North Vietnamese now. And he was a man of extremely strong faith. And so that played, you know, played a lot through his time right there in that rice paddy all the way through his time in captivity. Uh, he ends up, of course, he's picked up right then and there, and he's nowhere near Hanoi, where a lot of the prison camps, you know, everyone always hears about Hualo, the Hanoi Hilton there in uh, yeah. downtown Hanoi, but there's prison camps, you know, there's quite a number of them, but, uh, man, he's off the grid where, where they are. So they don't, uh, the best he's able to assess, they don't exactly know what to do with him, where you say, might as well go with the guys in uniforms. They don't necessarily want to hand them off to the villagers. They're probably not too happy to see him either. So he ends up get thrown back of the truck and he basically spends his first, I don't I, I'm making this up, but I'm going to guess a month or so living in a bamboo cage in the back of a Russian made pickup truck. I've read some of those stories, of those guys getting rolled up and they're talking about their transit from where they got rolled up into making to the Hanoi Hilton. Yeah. Obviously I can't do it justice. Part of it is a lot of them are suffering from flailing injuries yep. or similar kind of horrific thing they're dealing with medically. Exactly. And then they're, maybe they have a couple hours of rest and then the town's up in arms or they take them through the town and all the villagers are beating them. And there's even stories where they're like, you know, they can hear the guy on the loudspeaker rallying up the crowd. Exactly. And then they bring him out. And did he talk about what his, you know, those first couple moments of getting rolled up? Yeah, he, he did. He was actually, um, you know, especially because when I was younger, you know, we always wanted to hear the flying stories. We didn't, 
I, I was too young a lot of times to appreciate a lot of this piece of the story. All I wanted to hear about was flying and shooting yep. airplanes and dropping bombs and doing fighter pilot stuff. So I, I didn't, unfortunately, you know, for me as a younger, you know, young guy, I didn't have the scope for like really what had taken place, but he did. So like I said, I mean, he was a man of incredible faith and that wasn't until later in his life he'll tell you he he became a christian sitting in a rice paddy in north vietnam that's like what changed his life and if you ever heard his testimony it kind of takes off from that point but yeah it was more of like it was a very surreal i'm certainly not doing his words any justice but a very surreal time of okay here i am i have a potentially fatally ill wife at home with a son and now here i am and we don't know what the end of this looks like of course, by this time, it's 1968, so there's a number of POWs that have certainly come before him, but there's a lot of war left to be had. And I think there's just a lot of like, okay, this is like, now it's time to, you know, pull up the bootstraps and, and here we go, because we got a long road ahead. So yeah, and he spends the first, you know, couple of weeks or so, and just exactly as you described it, and then spends a stint of time with uh, in a cave, like they're just keeping him locked up in a cave. Uh, and he would talk about that was the first other, uh, another American he saw was in that cave. And he was talking about how blessed he was that, hey, I'm actually in pretty good shape. I'm not sick. I'm not beat up. Just like you said, and whoever this other guy was is in real rough shape and uh, kept complaining about his stomach and he's ill and he's, he's just in a bad way. And so the captors come up and they give him like, you know, big horse pill and like, here, there you go, take this. Within an hour, he's laying there dead. So that was where he, but then he realized, okay. I, I'm on my own here. Like I can't, nothing, they can't, I can't trust any of these guys. They're certainly not going to take care of me. It's my job now to stay as healthy as I can on my own. So yeah, I think that starts to like really take toll and really set what he's in for. So as you fast forward now, he eventually makes his way to Wallow, the, the Hanoi Hilton. He spends his time and I don't know the timeline well enough, but spends his time in a number of prison camps, but a majority of the time, which wasn't unheard of for a lot of POWs, but majority of the time there. In, in the Noi Hilton. And then he spends his first 20 months that he's there in solitary confinement completely by himself, which is pretty, it's unbelievable to think of that in itself that he came out with a sound mind and was able to even, those, that those men were even able to live functional lives after doing something like that. I cannot even fathom what it would be like to one, have the unknown of, are you going to be alive tomorrow? What is going to happen to me in 30 minutes? Am I going to be tortured? Am I going to have anything to eat, drink? I mean, and like you, th the things you take for granted, like you said, this is the first American he saw. Yeah. Hanoi Hilton, like never coming in contact with another American. The things we take for granted today is it's insane. And it's so easy to take these things for granted that, again, I can't even imagine being, even come close to being in that situation. I know. And that's, that's one of those things whenever I, complain about work or what I do or any of that stuff. And I'm just like, man, I don't yeah. know. I don't even know. Like, I don't pretend to know. Like I just need to keep my mouth shut. Things you, things you hear, we complain about sometimes. I need to put it back in perspective here. Cause yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not like anyone threw him in this cell block and was like, okay, you've got a year and a half. We'll see you on the other side. It was like, that's the piece I can imagine thing. It was like, say you're four months in and you have no idea when the end is inside, but you've been doing this for four months now and you're not even a third of the way there. You're a quarter of the way there. It's, yeah, like, yeah. it's unbelievable. And so, uh, you know, he would talk to me, you hear about the, the tech code that, the, that uh, they use in their time there to be able to communicate and they, uh, the things that he would do. I remember him talking about the things that he'd do to keep his mind occupied because he knew that was the thing I have to do. Like I have to keep my mind busy. I can't just sit here and, and wither away. I have to continue to fight. 
And, and that's the way you can do it. Like they, you hear those kinds of things, as, even as you go through seer and stuff, like you can't necessarily trap your mind. That's where you have some sense of freedom. So things he would do is like, he would design houses, build houses in his mind and come up with how many, how much square footage you would need or how much of certain materials he would need. He got to where I think it was, he can multiply a five digit number by five digit number in his head. So he'd just sit there and do like long multiplication the whole time. And then of course. They were like open air cells. So it was like bugs and rats and stuff came in there. He basically like studied bugs and like what they would do throughout the whole day and that kind of thing. So those were the things like just these like his own mind games this is how he would try and keep busy. And then of course, communicating as much as possible with the fellow prisoners. We fast forward to his time at the end of his time in solitary and he, they, there, there's a big. It's famous. I don't remember what they call it, but it's pretty well-known time where it's basically a big Christmas party that the. North Vietnamese, they host a Christmas party for, for all the prisoners. And so he, you know, they come pull him out more or less. And sure enough, there's a, there's a gentleman that's right next door from the cell next door that he's been communicating with via tap code for, you know, over a year at this point, but they've never met face to face. They've never spoken. They've never seen each other, but it's like, they know everything about each other. A fascinating story in that I actually got to meet that, meet that gentleman that was his the cellmate next to him, or, or as he would say, that was the first American I ever saw after making it to Hanoi. So. I got to meet that, that gentleman while I was in college, he was re retired one star or maybe retired two star, but pretty fascinating story to hear that from my grandfather growing up. And then to meet this guy introduce myself and him, tell me the exact same thing, you know, him be like, he was the first, he was the first English speaking American I had saw in a year and a half or something like that. It's pretty, pretty remarkable there. And so after that, I just moved around for, through some different cells. And then of course, with all the folks that you hear about now, like Bud Day and John McCain, Leo Thorsness and all those people that, you know, are so renowned for their time in, uh, in Hanoi. So fast forward, he's there for what? 1172 days is his time in captivity. And there's, a, there's another sidebar. I won't go down this diatribe unless you want to hear this one later, but pretty unbelievable story where towards the end of the war in 73, where they were take him and can't remember how many, maybe 400 other prisoners were taken up to the Chinese border. And then it's a really cool story about kind of the SR 71 and how it was used in Vietnam. They think they're being taken to the Chinese board to be executed. And then they're brought back to Hanoi after, I don't remember, I think it was a couple of months. And then shortly after there, they start sending the first waves of POWs home after they end up coming back to, to Hanoi. Yeah, it was a play there. What were they doing? So what the, fr from the POW side, they assumed, so it's towards the end of the war. Of course, the Vietnamese have, the North Vietnamese have unlimited propaganda and power over the POWs and telling them like, hey, how much in disarray our country is back home and no one supports the war. No one supports you guys. No one's coming for you. Those kind of, that kind of thing. And so they know either it's kind of, I mean, this is my assumption as you read about it. It's okay. Either they're, they're right or Things are going bad and they're getting desperate and they're trying to shake us right now. Of course, being the red-blooded, hard-fighting Americans they are, that's what they expect. They're like, this is just them trying to shake us. And so what they end up doing in the middle of the night, they loaded up them. Like I said, I think it was like 400 of them on just farm trucks. And they're in there with like chickens, pigs, and cows. And they start driving north. And they're under the assumption of this is their, their last stand. They're taking us up here and they're going to execute all of us. And... They're going to just send the, the other half of the remaining POWs. They're going to send them home. We're in the wrong half is basically what they yeah, assess. Yeah. And so they're in the truck driving nonstop from Noi up to the Chinese border. It took like two days, you know, nonstop for driving. And they have a, basically a makeshift POW camp in the jungle, but there ain't no, there's nowhere they can go that they called the dock patch. 
I don't actually know what the real name was, but they called it the dog patch and they had him up there for a while. And these, as he described it, you know, that was, this was honestly some of the scariest times, some of the most uncertain time as a POW, like he's there and he's, there's only one reason they would drag us up here is because no one knows we're here. We're in the middle of the jungle. They're going to kill all of us and they're going to leave us here. And this is it. So this was, and this is so really uncertain time and right at the tail end of the war. And it's a really cool story about the SR-71 because the SR-71 that we know now is flying top secret missions, surveillance missions over the North Vietnamese. And what happened was they were found, they, they were tracked and they were found by SR-71s that they were up there. And so at certain times a day towards the end of the war, the SR-71 would fly over Hanoi at 15 minute interval into a big double sonic boom over the top of the city, letting them know, Hey, we're still with you. And then when they found their site up in the Chinese border, they would do the exact same thing over there. And so talked about, they did it every single day at 15 minute intervals at high noon or whatever the time was, same time, same place every day, just letting them know, like, we know you're there and we know what's going on. And sure enough, after that started, it was like two weeks later, they were put on a truck and trucked back to Illinois. And then two weeks after that, the first POWs are uh, being repatriated. God, that's incredible. And that's something that's so simple as that sonic boom. Exactly. Right? Just showing that presence of, hey, we're here and uh, and we got your back still. So pretty, pretty amazing thing there. And then he's up the third wave, uh, third or fourth wave of POWs that went over in intervals, spaced out, I don't remember, two or three weeks, something like that. So back to his family life back home. So his wife, while he's a POW and he had his 40th birthday while he was in, in captivity and then his first wife, Jacqueline, she dies while he's in prison, while he's in captivity. So he finds out about that. I think six, six, eight months later, something like that, that it had happened. And that was obviously that's like rock bottom. That's as bad as it gets right there. Cause now he knows he's got a son at home and I think Craig's maybe nine, nine years old, something like that at the time. And so that's about as bad as it gets. And of course that was something even that he talked about later in life that once he was shot down, I think that was part of the part of part of his concern, of course, because he knew how bad a health she's in and he knows I'm not here for a couple of weeks. This is bad. And like, he may not make it home and sure enough, that's what happened. So now he comes home the end of the war and my uncle Craig's been living with his grandparents for the time for, for the, for that time. And he hasn't seen him in five years. And then he is responsible more or less now that the end of the war and everywhere he went again, jumping back again. So everywhere he went and as a POW, especially after initially getting captured, Everyone he interacted with, he asked, Hey, do you know where's Wayne or what happened to Wayne? And no one had seen him. No one knew it had happened. When they came home at the end of the war, all the POWs are returned. Basically everyone that's MIA is now declared KIA. If they aren't POWs, they weren't returned. And here you go, the Paris Peace Talks having the treaty, you know, we're leaving North Vietnam, everybody's KIA. So my, my biological grandfather, if you will, Wayne, so he's declared KIA at the end of the war. And that's the end of that. Um, so then. Once, uh, once Roger's home, it's on him. He's more or less, I, I, I know there's a term for it, but he's his, the officiating officer to make sure all of Wayne's stuff is in order make sure the family's taken care of and all of that kind of stuff. So he, he takes that, takes on that role but on the Air Force side, make sure all these things are taken care of. So throughout that, that Roger starts spending a lot of time in Chattanooga with my grandmother and my family. Of course, they all knew each other. And through all that, they end up getting married out of it because here he is, he's done these like unbelievable things and suffered this incomprehensible loss. And then here's my grandmother, my dad and his two brothers, and they've gone on with this uncertainty for five years, not having any clue what's going on for years on end. And like, here's some common ground and they end up getting married out of it. Yeah. So pretty fascinating in the sense of like, you know, fast forward again, 
another 15 years there, 10, whatever, 12 years, and I'm born after they've been married. And so that's what I grew up with was like, this is what we do. We're, we're proud Americans and we're in the fast jet business. So yeah. all I wanted to do as a kid was fly airplanes. Yeah. And so that's where the, the story comes full circle. And then Roger never got to see me. He never got to see me fly in the air force. At least he, he passed away. I had my pilot slot. So I was just, just prior to when I commissioned. So it was my last year in college, the Christmas Eve of 2011. And then my grandmother, my grandmother, just the greatest woman. She just passed away, like I said, about two years, I guess almost been three years ago now. So of course she saw me and my brothers, she saw us both flying A-10s and doing the whole deal. So that was pretty, pretty awesome. So that kind of brings us here today. I think I hit all the high points. Dude, man, that's... Some rabbit holes you can go down there, but I feel like, I feel like I've given you the, the full spiel. Yeah, man, that's an incredible story. I can't imagine too, like Roger coming back. I'm just thinking the repatriation, right? He's dealing with the fact that he has been a POW. I cannot imagine the mental stress and strain from all those factors. And then come back, his wife has passed away. He's now figuring out life. He's got a five, uh, what, a nine-year-old son. I mean, it talked about like having to deal with some stuff. Yeah. Yeah, like I go down and, and that's the part of the story. I honestly don't know that. I don't know what, I don't know what that piece was like when he came back he, home and when, like how all of that played out and what that was like. I don't know. That part of the story never came up. Uh, I can only imagine. I feel like I'd be in a pretty dark spot. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that was extremely difficult. He, and he didn't separate from the Air Force right away. He did one more assignment. He was promoted to 06 while he was in captivity. So that was, I guess that was a cool surprise when he came back home. It's like, oh, look at all this. And then went back, went to Randolph's, uh, got requalified in the T-38. Basically, after they did the did Air War College in conjunction with their repatriation course. I know there was a name for it, but basically where they teach all the POWs there at Maxwell, hey, this is what's happened over the past four, five, six, seven, and eight years for some of you guys. And then, yeah, requalifying the T-38. And then he went and flew, uh, did one assignment in the A-7. So predecessor of the A-10 was cool, flying at England Air Force Base in the, and flew quite a bit with the 76th Fighter Squadron, which is an A-10 unit at Moody now. And then, the, yeah, and after that, retired, went about their lives. I don't want to make light of it, but and not knowing Roger, but knowing he's a fighter pilot, I think he would appreciate this. The fact yeah. they got promoted while I was in captivity is pretty amazing because I undoubtedly know today... There's some shoe clerk out there that he's missing this record. We can't promote him. You know, he's, it, yeah. he's, he's serving the country and he has a POW. So yeah, he hadn't filled out his voucher yet. And so, right. Like, so that's yeah, <laughs> so, obviously but, can't, can't happen. Yeah, no, you're yeah. exactly right. At least some things they got right, I guess. Oh so. yeah. You got it. That's an incredible family heritage. And I want to jump just a little bit too. So you're the A-10 demo pilot now Yeah. to tie into all this, the, Really cool thing. I know Shiv worked on a good bit as well as yeah. the leadership out there at DM was getting the jets painted up in a heritage scheme. And Shiv flew one jet, painted up, and now there's two in the lineup that are uh, painted. Am I correct? No, unfortunately, uh, his jet two seven five. We lost that one. I All mean, right. I say we lost it. It's back with the it's with the ops squadron. And you got there. It's, it's painted gray right now. It's got bombs and bullets in it, and it's ready to go. So now it's just back in the lineup, doing what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, out yeah. there in a killing machine. But you got one jet that's painted up and it ties back. Can you talk to me a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it has one that comes full circle. So Shiv, about the time, about the time I'd been named as his replacement, we started talking about that because we knew, hey, the the ops unit is gonna be take back the uh two seven five is painted jet. Ops foreigners taking it back or a new one, but there's an opportunity potentially to paint another one. And I think this was already in his lineup of ideas, but he came to me and he's like, What would you if you could paint an airplane, anything, what would you do? And before he could even finish that sentence, I said, it's got to be a Southeast Asia woodland camouflage. That's 
There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's what it is. (laughs) And uh, he was like, yeah, I think that looks super cool. And we went back and forth about it. I was like, man, it's perfect. It's perfect. We have uh, a very strong Vietnam War, Southeast Asia heritage in our wing here. Like all these units flew at the time and some pretty, pretty remote, you know, just in this wing alone, you had two Medal of Honor recipients. And then one, one, it was a major time, Major Jim Kassler received three Air Force Crosses the highest of anybody anyone in the history of the air force since like we got that in our wing so we got some pretty pretty substantial heritage there one for all of my selfish reasons it's i want a vietnam era a10 i don't feel like i need to justify that anymore <laughs> it's all selfish if you want that's what i want and one i thought it looked super cool in the a10 and then also as i hinted to before it's a fair trial republic aircraft for public aviation who built the built the f-105 so it's like some cool cool lineage there as well as kind of a predecessor to, to the 105 so yeah that was the idea with that and if that was my only idea and i was sticking to it and yeah. and fortunately it turned out pretty good that's perfect we don't see now but i'll throw this up in the video it's up on youtube so people can see it but they can go see you fly in an air show which is really the way to do it and with that too we're not done yet but where can people find you and where can they find the demo team and more info out yeah of course it? you can find us we have our website it's through acc if you just google a10 demo team it's the second link on there not the first one we're working on that. <laughs> and then, of course, social media. We're present on, on social media. So our Facebook page, the A10 Demonstration Team, and then our Instagram page, at, at A10 Demo Team. Uh, you can find all the updates there, pictures there, videos, our show schedule. That's what we keep most up to date. I chuckled at this because I knew you were like, I think you just finished your first air show. It was April Fool's Day and got posted up that the A10 Demo Team was canceled for the season. And having been a demo pilot and just knowing what goes into it, I, I just chuckled because I was like, Gator's going to have a really bad day. Yeah, that wasn't that a great day. Fortunately, uh, again, being selfish here, fortunately I had plausible deniability on that one. It's actual plausible deniability. So yeah. I think that might have saved my bacon about maybe that much. But yeah, I got a lot of angry phone calls in a very short amount of time for that one. Yeah, it turns out, yeah, the demo is going on. Someone just thought it'd be funny. And you live and learn, right? That's no one died is. from it, so no big deal. But uh, I, I chuckled at that, just knowing all the like heads where they were exploding throughout the, from air shows across the country into demo. But yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 as soon as I saw it, I laughed talking to Shiv about it. Because as soon as I was, I was sitting in a flight brief at Edwards, because we were doing a thing up there. And as I'm sitting in the brief, it's a little more casual. And you're standing fighter pilot brief. And I have my phone sitting on the desk. And I'm writing down some notes. And all of a sudden... All the like important work people uh, <laughs> in my phone, it just starts just like vibrating off the table as uh, I'm getting back to back phone calls from who I would qualify or all the important work people. And I was like, man, I may need to step outside and take this one. <laughs> yeah, that's what it ended up being. Oh, uh, yeah, digress. But I kind of want to talk a little bit about your A10. A10 career and maybe some of the highlights there. You got a lot of stuff that's coming up, and uh, the demo stuff will be a lot of fun. I can attest to that. But I know you probably did not join the Air Force, much like me, to be a demo pilot. Yeah. Uh, you wanted to go out there and do the job, and it sounds like you got to do the job right out the gate at your first assignment down at, at Moody. Yeah, I, I sure did. That was uh, that was cool. I always tell people that was an extremely educational time in my flying life. Yeah, I graduated the B course, and the A-10 is a little unique from other fighter pl- platforms. We do our MQT, uh, so our mission call uh, training as part of the B course. So our final check ride, we have a final form A check ride as your last ride in the B course, and bam, you are blessed. You're an MQT, and you're ready to go to work. Uh, now, does that mean you are actually ready to go to war as a brand new youngest, dumbest guy in the squadron? Maybe the only time will tell that, but, but uh, at least on paper, yeah, you're good to go. So I showed up to Moody. I knew they were deploying and I knew, I knew the AOR that they're going to, but that was the extent of it. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into or what, what the picture even looks like there or what, you know, I hadn't, I, my expectations were none because I didn't even know the right questions to ask. 
I just knew there's, you know, hey, teams deploying, and it sounds like I might be going to. So I graduate the B course. I show up to uh, Moody, and I sit down with the squadron commander. And I get there, and he says, "Hey, man, welcome to the team. We're gonna get you. We're gonna get you spun up as quick as possible. We'll do your LAO here in about seven months when you get back. Because uh, right now we're just gonna get <laughs> we're gonna get you spun up, and because you're going with, you're flying as number six on my wing in the first cell heading that way. And I was like, that's what I'm here to do. Let's do this. So again, I just took that approach and it's advice I give people like, Hey, you're the youngest, dumbest person in the squadron and don't act like you're any more than that because you are, and it's okay to be that person. It's okay to ask a lot of questions and it's okay to not know the answer to this stuff because everyone else has been doing spin up for about six months and you haven't done any of it. Like you've been doing the B course the entire time they've been doing deployment spin up. So there was this fancy new miraculous uh, miracle weapon called the GBU-54 I'd never even heard of or seen before. And it's like, yeah, you're going to be carrying that all the time. And so just a lot of learning, a lot of fun stuff, learning there. And then just the flail of we didn't know where we were going or where where we were going to be based out of. It turns out we go to Insulip, Turkey, and A-10s hadn't been Turkey in, uh, I don't remember, 20 years or something like that. So we're basically standing up ops there. There was a there was the 510th, there was a Viper unit there at the time. So we were going to take over for them, but no, no real A-10 continuity. So I operate out of there. And then, yeah, I spent the next six months um, flying mostly in northern Iraq, northern Syria, uh, taking the fight to ISIS. So uh, pretty, as far as a young lieutenant in a fighter squadron, you couldn't ask for a much better experience in sharpening, you know, your combat teeth. Because here I am within about six weeks. I think it was, I, I can't remember now. I think it was within six weeks of my B course graduation, I dropped my first bombs on northern Iraq. So it wasn't wasting a lot of time. And, and it was a, yeah, it was a really exciting time. We had a very experienced squadron there at the time, which is a rarity uh, in the A-10 world. I know it's the same in the Viper world now. It's like a lot of the experience is moving on to other things. So we had, I was really fortunate that we had a very experienced squadron. Our LPA was actually, it was only too deep. It was me and one other lieutenant in the squadron. And then we had a, one of our good buddies who was a reservist there at Moody in the 76 that deployed with us for the first half as a lieutenant. So with all the young guys and everyone else was really experienced and we got to do a lot of exciting things. It was an extremely kinetic time taking the fight to ISIS. OIR was really busy. And uh, talk about right place, right time. I always talk about that. The fact <laughs> that you're able to show up and deploy. We had a couple guys, you know, I, I was similar to the Viper, but I was six months, right? Like oh, I wow. showed up yeah. prior to deployment, which was enough time to get through MQT, exactly. do some spin up. And I would say like the last guy who showed up and was able to deploy with us was probably three months out. And he got like half his MQT done. And then just switch to straight doing close air support, which yep. yeah, y'all, all you're focused on really is suppression, maybe air defenses, right. DCA, you hit everything else, but those are all cleanup items after we got back from the deployment just to get that body down range. So the fact in the A-10 that obviously it's a close air support platform, that's what you're doing in the B course predominantly, exactly. all of it. So just be able to roll straight into deployment is pretty lucky because there are guys who go, yeah, and it's no fault of their own. Like it's just bad timing. They show up right when the squadron deploys. And then they moved to the next, you know, base and squadrons deployed again. Like they just never get the opportunity to go out there and do it. But yeah, you're exactly uh, right. And when I tell people that sometimes when they ask me, you know, when I talk with ROTC cadets or things like that, and they ask, and I'm like, yeah, this is how my timeline went. They ask because of course, you know, everybody wants to know about combat time and that kind of thing. And they, sometimes you get this impression. They think you're like some kind of special guy because, oh, they let you deploy right away. It's like, no, man, it's literally any other a10 pilot could have should have would have done the exact same thing i did it is it just to your point i say it all the time it's dumb looking timing that's all it is uh i was just the guy that guy that was there at the time and and got to do it and got to uh got to get some experience early on yes yeah, it, it was funny to come home and i've been in the squadron for call it seven months now something like that almost eight months by the time i come back yeah i guess eight months by the time i come back and leave and then got to moody and had to do my leo 
LA local area orientation. It's the yeah. first ride you do when you show up to figure out like, where do you go? Where's the yeah, we skipped all that. Stuff. Stuff. Like, you're going to be number two. Yeah. You just hang <laughs> on for the couple flights you'll do here. So that was pretty funny. You got an LAO for OIR when you got there. Yeah. So. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Man, uh, talk about that's that's pretty good time. And the fact then too, you turn around, and then your next assignment being a DM, right place, right time. Yeah, if you want to go deploy, you nailed it, right? Yeah, exactly. What was like going from OIR back to Afghanistan? Yeah, so that was that was pretty wild. It was an extremely extremely different fight, and I, and people, uh, a lot of folks always assume, and this is just Gator talking. This is like extremely personal or personal opinion of mine. But people always talk about OIR must have just been like the greatest thing ever because you're just going out there, you're cleaning off the jets, you're shooting the gun, you're staying busy, you're doing the Lord's work, you're out there doing the J-O-B, you're doing what you're supposed to do in the A-10. And it's and it was, and it was awesome, and it was a huge confidence builder, and it was very gratifying to go out there and do what you trained to do. But I will say on the flip side of that, being in Afghanistan and being on line of sight communications and looking over the rail and being like, that's American troops, like right there. Like I can see them with my eyeballs and they are clearing through this village. And our job today is protect those dudes right there. That was a lot more gratifying a lot of times. And especially those sorties where it's call it a boring sortie or we're not going, we're not kinetic. We're not doing the things we're out there to do. A lot of times it was like, man, that's the best, that's the best thing to go today. That means every single one of those dudes down there came home. So uh, if you're complaining about not dropping enough bombs and stuff, your mind's in the right spot. Every one of those guys came home today, and that's exactly what matters. It certainly wasn't. We stayed busy, and we did a lot of work over there on this last trip. And they, it was told to us it was the most it was the most kinetic A-10 deployment to Afghanistan in the history of the war. So there was plenty to be had there for the time period we were there. But it was a lot of times it was way more gratifying to just know, hey, I'm on line of sight, two way comms with this guy and we're we're their dedicated support all day today and that felt pretty good that felt like we we're out there doing some a10 stuff like it's something different when it's coalition forces and you're talking to them on the radio and then you need the help versus you're kind of like removed if you're getting a message via some means to go exactly right. this building or whatever I mean, there's not a there's not a u.s or allied person or you know there's nobody within called 30 miles of that thing you know, in, in a lot of cases that would probably been pretty close if they're within 30 miles so a lot of it's even further than that and you know i know you've had people on the podcast before and you've had people share the same sentiment but yeah it definitely changes the game as soon as you hear the words danger close come out and and they're they're legit danger closer when you start hearing hey they're the 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 jtac you're trying to is screaming on the radio because someone right next to him is returning fire with a 50 cal or with small arms or something like that and it's, okay yeah this is for real now yeah, there's there's some really good videos out there. I guess guys who've somehow captured their HUD footage and, and thrown it out there, where yeah. it's like you get thrown in that situation. Can't imagine meeting the dudes on the ground, but uh, you gotta know. I guess they're appreciative of uh, those A10s showing up. And everyone always says they always want an A10 to show up and do <laughs> close air support. And I get it. Yeah, yeah nice right. and slow and can hang out forever. It's, it's, and then, yeah, we we have our one. We have we yeah. got our one space that people want us to be. So. <laughs> we'll do this. We can like wrap up here. Now you're the A10 demo pilot. So again, right place, right time, right qualification. It's a pretty good. It's a pretty good deal. What has the transition like been for you? Because the A10 side of the house, you're able to still fly some. I imagine student sorties, instruct on the side exactly. while still doing demo, right? Yeah, yeah, I am. I haven't done a ton of uh, flying with the Ops Squadron 
uh, here's right now that the season started, but certainly as I was doing the spin up with Chip, as he was doing the, going through the, the demo syllabus with me, getting me trained up, I was still flying full time with the squadron. So it was awesome. But yeah, that, that transition was, it was really cool. It was, it was the most fun upgrade I've ever done. That's for sure. Yeah. Just get to go out there and max perform the airplane the whole time. And, and you build a lot of confidence just as a stick and rudder pilot in the airplane doing that. So that was a ton of fun. Just get to do some stuff you don't ever, uh, you don't ever get to do. I guess it probably been. It probably been since the B course. Yeah, I can't think of another time. It'd been since the B course. I'd just flown a clean A10, like a eight and like TR phase in the B course. So the very first couple rides you do when you're learning to fly the A10, I'd never, I hadn't flown a clean one since. So it was cool just to fly strip down, uh, strip down jet and see, get the most out of it you can. And, and the job itself has just been, it's been an absolute blast. Just like you said, it's like one of the best kept secrets, one of the best kept secrets in the Air Force. And. Yeah. And exactly right. Dumb luck and timing, right place, time. Shib was on his way out. I just got to raise my hand. It was like, hey, I'm going to throw my hat in the room. And so I did exactly that. And yeah, it's been very cool being able to take the airplane around, show off the airplane to people that don't ever get to see, you know, much less an A-10. They don't see Air Force fighters of any kind. So uh, really cool to take it off, show off the airplane, show off the airmen and like highlight, dude, look at this. These guys that keep this thing even going. Yesterday was 49 years to the day the A-10 flew for the first time. We're getting some pretty wow. old airplanes now. Yeah. Uh, and and these guys work miracles a lot of time to keep them flying. And not just flying, but flying to max performance to, to as hard as we can. And so getting, getting to show that off, show off the airplane. And now with it's, with the you know, the story with the paint scheme, you get to show that off a little bit, the heritage behind it. Yeah, you couldn't ask for a much better deal. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun right now. Yeah, upgraded the C model. And then I know it's always been a controversy in the the news or back and forth. And there's been a lot of state everything's a controversy these yeah. days. But where is it A ten and as far as getting the new wings? Yeah, and I can't I can't quite bore you with all the numbers of how many wings they bought versus how many airplanes we have. I, I don't know all the ins and outs of that. And there's probably some well, to include one of my maintenance guys if they listen to this that are gonna smack me in the face because of how unintelligently I can speak to the subject. But yeah, big picture, there's three different wings on the A-10. There's three different types. But as you walk up to it, like me as a guy, as a guy who drives the airplane, I can't tell you the difference uh, between any of them. But yeah, so with with that, there are upgrades coming out to keep the service life of the airplane extended out to 2030. 2030 is now, that's the number that you, that gets uh, pushed out. That's what we were funded to. It's, it's not going to be the full fleet. It won't be what we currently sit here with right now on this day. This many airplanes, like all the way through 2030. Uh, but there will be A-10s flying at least that long. And so then uh, they prioritize what tails are going to stay and which jets get the new wings and all those kinds of things. And yeah, like I said, I can't speak intelligently how all that works. But what I will say, it, it is cool in a lot of senses to see like even that 2030 date on the horizon, nobody just stops and just says, okay, well, this airplane, like we're done here. Like we'll just let it ride it out. Stops. No, we still get upgrades. We still get things coming out. We still are, are able to affect the fight. And there's uh, still things coming down the pipeline to make us more combat effective in wars to come for the old airplanes, at least keep us, keeps in the fight and, and have us be a usable asset until the day comes that there's no worries. Hence. Yeah. And not that I know anything about anything, but I figure uh, you say 2030, they going to keep, they're going to keep flying and keep extending because you obviously can't afford to keep buying really expensive toys yeah. and you need, we like, we need those expensive exactly. toys, but low cost fighters, those are a thing of the past, but you need low cost fighters to go out there. You need someone to go out there and do some work. You got the fancy fifth gen guys. Yeah, just... and look at the wars we've been fighting the last twenty years. Again, this is Gator talking, not on the behalf of anybody, but it's just like the the A tens a really good airplane for that. Long water time, cheaper to operate. We can carry a lot of stuff, and we can hang out for a long time in an, in a completely un, uncontested environment. Like we're a good airplane for that. There's no doubt about it. You don't need 
uh, $200 million airplanes going out there to do that a lot of times, but it is an opportunity. Like I understand the fact to hey, get them out there and there's ways to cut their, those combat teeth on those things and get a lot of good lessons learned out of it before that the war right. will, you need this airplane before it, uh, you don't want that necessarily being the first time, you know, it gets a swing at the bat. So I can understand that piece too. You, you always hear the, the gripes about the, the F-35, you know, everything in the news and stuff. It's usually not the people that actually operate the airplanes. It's usually everyone else that gets really upset about the F-35 that's replacing the A-10. And it's usually my rebuttal or my kind of soapbox thing with that. It's like, you know, they didn't build the F-35. The F-35 was not designed or built to be a direct replacement of the A-10. So when people talk right. about it being like, the F-35 will never replace what the A-10 does. Oh, it's like, well, they didn't build it to do that. And it's as it sits right now, it's not supposed to do that. It's just going to be, you know, it's, it's supposed to be an all-encompassing weapon system that's going to, it's going to take on that mission set the same way as the Viper. I just say, like, the Viper wasn't built to be a close air support aircraft. It was Correct. supposed to be day VFR, BFM, monster, go out there and shoot down airplanes and win the war that way. It wasn't designed to be loaded down with laser-guided bombs and multiple fuel tanks and doing all, it's like, <laughs> same, same kind of premise, but yeah. Yeah, you need a jack of all trades, master of none, Bingo. show up and... They'll do it. What's not going to live in a contested environment with double-digit SAMs is the the Viper and the Hawk. Like, yeah. and 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 I've never argued that fact with people too. When they, <laughs> when they try and get real uppity about that one too. I'm like, you're not wrong, and I don't have a great uh, I don't have a great response to that either. Yeah. Ah, still fighting the F-35. It's like clubbing a baby seal in a dog fight. But yeah, exactly. I got a funny story with Dojo. I went out and actually after Heritage, yeah. he and I, we went out and did a couple high aspect sets. And then it just went mill power because it was cheating. He had a lot of gas. I didn't. And then yada, yada. But then we'd run this like kind of low level route together. My wingman is off in the airspace doing a fan flight with someone. And I'm just following Dojo and Wedge. And then we just appear behind my wingman. That's what the F-35 does. Like my wingman had no idea. His radar was just getting like trashed and he's yeah. okay. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. But Gator, as we wrap up here, man, I always like to ask those on the podcast, if you ran into 15, 16 year old Gator, is there any advice or tips or tricks you'd give him? Yeah, I'll be honest. I wish I had something profound, but I would tell that Gator like, dude, keep fighting the good fight because it all pans out. I'm extremely happy with uh, where I've been, with where I've ended up. I don't have, I don't have this like great, overcoming adversity kind of story or anything like that. It was just, I've got a, I've got an amazing support system, whether it's my wife, whether it's my kids, my family, my parents back home. And then my grandparents, of course, growing up, it's literally my grandmother uh, and my granddad. The reason, the whole reason I am even here. And I'd, uh, I'd look that Gary in the face, probably give him a big high five and just say, dude, keep, keep <laughs> chugging along. There's going to be a couple of hiccups along the way, but it's going to pan out how you want. Because since I was about five years old, this is what I want to do. I want to fly jets and, and uh, serve in the Air Force. I definitely wouldn't change my vector at all. Dude, that's awesome. That's yeah. winning. Gator Man, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Enjoyed talking to you and hearing about your family's history and, and your story too. You as well, Rain. Thanks a lot, man. This has been a lot of fun. Cheers. Yeah, Zach. Hey, thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed Gator's story, his family's story. To me, it's pretty incredible. Definitely an interesting one. Again, I apologize for the audio quality. If there are things in there that you're like, that sounds weird. Again, I'm not very smart, and I'll take the hit for that. I'll be better next time. If you're looking for the There I Was story, again, that lives over on Patreon. You can support the podcast, get some additional content. And if you're, again, you're just looking to support the podcast, swing over to iTunes, drop a rating review. That helps me out. Helps podcasts grow, and we'll keep it going. But until next time, don't bring a week.